Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rose. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Last year, in anticipation of the Academy Awards, we created a new miniseries, Music and Popcorn, where we discussed people's favorite soundtracks and movies about music. Today's episode is for our 2021 Heat Rocks Brain Trust. Myself, Oliver, and our guest co-host this year, Jocelyn Brown. Hey, JB. Hello again. Happy to be here. So we batted around some ideas for this episode, and we settled on a topic that has come up with some frequency over the years here in Heat Rocks, 90s soundtracks. I don't know about how the two of you see this, but I feel like 80s soundtracks get all of the love and the attention, and I mean no disrespect to the iconic films of John Hughes and everything else from the 80s, uh, but that decade I don't think has the monopoly on iconic important soundtracks. And as I'll talk about more during my pick, I think the obvious thing that 90s soundtracks did was to bring in much more R&B and hip hop uh, into the movie game. And, you know, outside of a few key exceptions in the 80s, like Purple Rain or, or Crush Groove, a lot of the, the major 80s soundtracks that we tend to talk about were certainly not very heavily saturated with black music at all, uh, especially compared to what we saw in the 1970s with all the influential uh Black exploitation soundtracks, etc. The 90s, I think, finally brought some better balance with albums uh, that were very important vehicles, as we'll get into later on in our discussion today, for a new generation of R&B and hip-hop acts to get put on. Indeed. I mean, R&B and hip-hop got married. You know, you had New Jack Swing, and then, of course... Hip hop soul became a thing. Mary J. Blige, what's the four one one? What I always think about when I think about the '90s soundtracks is a lot of the conversation that I've seen on social media and I've just had with some of my friends and colleagues about how, um, for for many of us, um, the soundtrack was better than the film, and so we rushed out to get that soundtrack um, before we even thought about the film. Not not in all cases, obviously, there's some exceptions. Right. But when I th- when I think about '90s soundtracks, the ones that st- stand out to me are are Above the Rim, I think of uh, Poetic Justice as being one of those. Yeah. I think of uh, New Jack City to start the decade in 91. Yeah. And uh, and obviously Space Jam. So some of those are are stuck in my, my memory. But uh, to your point, it was R&B and hip hop central. And those soundtracks were vital. We bumped those long after we had seen the movie. And even if we didn't go see the movie. Right. Absolutely. I'm with both of you. When I think about 90s soundtracks, I definitely think about the rise of R&B and hip hop and popularity and seeing multiple genres within those worlds kind of fused together. But mostly I think about the fact of hip hop and rap by their nature kind of speaking to a level of innovation and style, language and cultural omnipresence that kind of took over in the same way that punk music did in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Later on in the 90s, we kind of saw the same thing happen again relative to dance and electronic music. Yeah. Um, to me, it's only natural that elements of both of those genres kind of showed themselves to be influential as well. 
when you think about punk and grunge, you think about the single soundtrack or the Judgment Night soundtrack. But as for me, today I'm going to be discussing the first of the two train spotting soundtracks that were released during that era. The way that we structured this is there's three of us. So we each picked a 90s soundtrack that we wanted to talk about, and we're going to go in the chronological order that they came out in. And so that's going to mean that I get to start off first because I chose a soundtrack from 1991 which was the OST, the original soundtrack for Boys in the Hood. The film may not have been about music, but there's no way that you're going to set a film in early 90s South Central Los Angeles featuring Ice Cube as one of your leads and not have, I think, an ambitious soundtrack uh, to go with it. And in fact, I think one of the main reasons, actually the main reason that I picked this, is that to me, Boys in the Hood produced the first good hip-hop soundtrack of the 90s. I don't think it was the first first, but if you compare it to what came before, and, and this goes back to a point that, Morgan, you were making, so New Jack City, which also was from 91, even though that you would think that a film that is set during the rise of the crack wars in the 80s would have had like an incredible hip hop soundtrack. Overwhelmingly, the soundtrack to New Jack City was mostly R&B music. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm not trying to diss Guy or Johnny Gill, but I don't, I don't really think of them when I think of, again, 80s crack era New York. Um, the To me, the only real hip hop songs on that soundtrack were New Jack Hustler by Ice-T and In the Dust by Two Life Crew, um, which were both fine, but neither of them were, were particularly memorable songs by either artist. I don't think they really rank super, super high in either of their, their catalogs. I got nothing to lose, much to gain in my brain. I got a capitalist migraine. I got to get paid tonight. You motherfucking right. Taking my grip. Check my bitch. Keep my game tight. So many hoes on my jock. Think I'm a movie star. 19. I got a $50,000 car. Go to school. And then if you go back a year earlier, you do have House Party in 1990. Um, and you got some Flavor Flav on there. You have some LL Cool J. And of course, you have Kid and Play. Smooth, not slow. Be a dynamo. Kid and Play says so. And yo, let's flip when the beat rips. Wiz got a gift and we got the tune to shoot it. Your place of mine. Anywhere just fine. When you're in the mood to unwind and find a good time. I'm looking for If you look at where hip hop was at in 1989 and, and 1990, this soundtrack and along with New Jack City, they feel like they're cut from a different universe than one in which groups like NWA or Ice Cube or De La Soul or Special Ed or Eric B. and Rakim, these are all the dominant acts, but they're not represented in the soundtracks. And when you get to Boys in the Hood, this to me is what felt like, okay, here is a proper early 90s hip hop soundtrack. You got Cube on there, obviously. Compton's Most Wanted, Yo-Yo, Chub Rock, Main Source, Cam, Moni Love, and sure, a little Tevin Campbell and some Tony, Tony, Tony for the R&B crowd. But I think the, the key difference with the Boys in the Hood soundtrack is that it felt like it was put together by someone who was actually actively listening to what hip hop of that era sounded like um, in comparison to some of the other films that we just we just talked about. Drive a brand new Benz and they can't say shit. It's your life. Don't be stupid, though. As most people know, if you've been listening to this uh, show a time or two, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I saw this film uh, in theaters um, when it came out. I saw this film um, in, in South Central. 
I think there were a lot of different sounds on here, but one thread was that they slipped in West Coast where it needed to be slipped in, and I was excited about that. I was excited about Cube. I was excited about Tony, Tony, Tony from the Bay. Yeah. Um, I was excited from about Too Short from the Bay. Yeah. So I thought California was well represented, and I loved also the the dual um, score component of of having two composers on there, Quincy Jones and Stanley Clark. So I thought it was a, a mixed bag of sounds, disparate sounds. Right. But I like the angle that it took. It all added, added to, it all added a bit of irony, I think, to what was going on in the film. I'm curious, Morgan, not to turn you into the native informant here, but given that part of the film is, is shot in the Crenshaw, you grew up in the Crenshaw. How what was it? What was it like seeing this film, and, and how do you feel like it represented the neighborhoods that you and your friends grew up in? It was shot in like two blocks from where I grew up. Mm. It was like a scene from my neighborhood. Yeah, uh, the train tracks the boys are walking on are a block and a half from my mother's house, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of the liquor stores. So it was like, that was what made it so real seeing it in the theaters. In fact, my cousin was like, why did we pay for this? We could have just sat outside, right? Uh, But but I think there was a, a, a little bit extra put on it you know, there was a lot of conversation. It, it's worth going back to watching the trailer for Boys in the Hood. The voiceover is like, you know, South Central with yeah. crime and death. And it's like. In South Central L.A. Yo, Benita, let's do the local thing. It's tough to beat the streets. It's hard to be a saint in South Central L.A. I don't understand why you insist on learning things the hard way, Trey, but you're going to learn. The trailer is very <laughs> dramatic, um, but it was very much a slice of of I think my my reality in terms of what I was able to see that's yeah. what was so ironic about what was put on the soundtrack that it it did represent a lot of what I heard in the neighborhood beyond just uh, beyond just rap yeah Justin how about you do you have any particular impressions about the music of Boys in the Hood it just kind of sticks with you especially after the first time that you see it um, you know I'll I'll say Stanley Clark's theme whenever that comes up throughout the film you kind of find yourself on the edge of your seat because like there's some foreshadowing there just in the notes that are being played from that sax. You've got that bass going and it's like, man, what's going to happen? What's about to happen? Um, And that to this day is one of the things that has kind of gotten me about that movie. I have to actively work to really keep myself focused on the film and what's happening because Mm. that track puts me in this headspace of being so concerned for the characters. And, and to me, when you've got a, a composer working the score and, and making the track on that level, they're doing their job. Why is it there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. We're talking about the soundtrack. What's the fire track? I hate asking this question because I hate putting you in the hot seat, but I know you're going to ask me, so yeah. all's fair. <laughs> so the fire track off the soundtrack. Um, this was actually hard to pick because, as I was saying earlier, this is, a I thought, a really, really solid um, album in terms of the, the quality of the songs. And unlike some of the other 
uh, soundtracks I mentioned earlier that were basically, I think, repurposed songs that may have already been out there. They weren't songs that were that were exclusive to the soundtrack. I feel like for Boys in the Hood, these songs were specifically solicited for the soundtrack, which I think also makes it special. So you have things like there's the remix to Main Source's Friendly Game of Baseball, which I even now, I, it's still a surprising inclusion, partly because it, um, he's Main Source is one of the very few East Coast artists to make it onto what is otherwise a very heavily West Coast um, album. So the outfielder guns you down, you're out. Wolf took the dugout underground. I know a cop that's savage. His pockets stay green like cabbage because he has a good batting average. No questions, just pulls out the flame off. And his excuses get lamer. Uh, obviously, you have Ice Cube's How to Survive in South Central, which I think plays during the closing credits. Pretty solid from him, though I wouldn't say it's one of his best songs. Um, the track, though, that I was like, you know what? This this still holds up 30 years later. Yo-Yo's Mama Don't Take No Mess. Now, when it came to partying, mom got wow. Don't not get over coals and they come back to style. That's right. Yo, I got a down-ass mama. Yeah, I stay standing for Yo-Yo. Uh, Same. I mean, her all of her work from that era is it holds up. Just go back to any of her albums from the early '90s. That any. song in particular is crazy fierce, and it may just be that I like any song that uses brick house. But Yo-Yo just had she had flow, and you know before there was Afro Puffs by the Lady of Rage, um, you know post MC Light and and Queen Latifah. I thought Yo-Yo really was just holding down. LA and the West Coast uh, as an MC. And, um, you know, Mama Don't Take No Mess is still just, it's fire. It's fire. So that's my, that's my call. How about you, Morgan? I'm stuck between two. I think just as a primer about South Central, how to survive in South Central, sick, and more bounce to the outs, just what do you... Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, what do you... <laughs> that's one of my favorite songs of, of, of all time. You know what I mean? So that's just... Chef's Kiss. And yeah. I think it's the West Coast component to Ten Crack Commandments. It is sort of a primer on how to survive in certain elements, right. certain hood ele elements. So it's like a Hood Thomas guy. <laughs> Rule number three, don't get caught up. Because niggas are doing anything that's caught up. And they got to fight on everything from dope to stolen merchandise. Read the turn. Because I'm central LA. It's one big turn. Wait for a brother like you to catch a disease. I also love Septembro. I loved Quincy Jones back on the block. Mm. Um, I love, I think it's an interesting pairing between uh, Take Six and, and Sarah Vaughn. But yo, I mean, the, fantastic. And so those two, you know, the soft side of me loves Septembro. The hard side of me loves How to Survive in South Central. JB. Yeah. Mine would be Tony, Tony, Tony's Just Me and You. Uh, I'm a softie. Um, no, that's a jam. And I felt, it is. And I felt like it was impossible to escape that song during this time, at least on the radio. You know, as a group, they had a great run around this time and they had a really honestly pleasing presence. I hate to say that. Like this was <laughs> this was the one group that my mom and I unilaterally agreed upon. And and I don't know. Raphael Sadiq is just a treasure and so are the other gentlemen in the band. Like that that was my song. I really, really love 
mistaken i think that song again i think that was solicited it was it was recruit whatever the right term here is but it was made for the soundtrack and unlike i was saying before some of these other songs that by the artists on, that were on here may not necessarily be their amongst their most most memorable but i actually think that me and you within the tony 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 uh catalog really holds up really well um and if i'm not mistaken is this is this the song that plays during the sex scene <laughs> It might be. Listen, I'm spiritual. So if it did play during the sex scene, you know what I'm saying? I don't remember that. I blacked out. But no, I think it did. Okay. That's what I heard. I mean, the reason I was thinking about this is there's not really, there's surprisingly few musical placements, or I should say there's few prominent musical placements in the film. And I think this is one of the few times where you hear something more than just, let's say, just for a snippet of a scene. And so... Um, maybe for that reason, it also stands out to me is because you actually got to hear like at least 60 seconds from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep it in spiritual. Yes. Yes. Best music placement in the film. What do, you, what do you guys think? Yeah, speaking of which. So, I mean, look, like I said a moment ago, I think what's wild is they have this incredible soundtrack. And it's not really a criticism because I'm just I'm glad the soundtrack exists. They don't really use it that much in the film itself. Um I think the two examples that stand out to me, one is uh, one of those aforementioned snippets, and it's it's the scene about maybe midway through the film where Trey is coming back from the barbecue at Doughboy's house, and he's stopped in the streets by um, the bangers who uh, later on in the film will kill Ricky, spoiler alert. And in that scene for, I don't know, three, four bars, you hear the instrumental of Ice Cube's A Bird in the Hand. Uh, which is just a sick, sick track. I think Sir Jinx put that together. Yeah. But it's short and then it ends. And so really the, the 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 answer to this is almost kind of by default, besides the Tony 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 example. It's when they play that very long montage at the end of the first act that's set to the five stair steps, Ooh Child. And I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'd am i wager this was probably the first time I ever heard Ooh Child. Um, and so it, I think it wins the category because of its prominence, because it is the most prominent placement, uh, one of the, at least of, of a handful in the film. But like I was saying a moment ago, honestly, I think considering how good overall the soundtrack was, it seems like a pity that they didn't use more of the songs in it um, within the film to, to, to more of an effect. Again, I'm not really complaining because I'm just glad the soundtrack exists, but it does surprise me that there wasn't greater synergy in p- using placements from that soundtrack in, in the film itself. It feels like a missed opportunity. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Morgan, what do you think? I don't remember exactly the specific scene, but I remember the moment that I heard Nucleus jam on it. I was like, okay, this is fantastic. Yeah, right. 
And I think it re- it reminds me so much of of Uncle Jam's Army mm-hmm. and um, DJ um, General Lee and a lot of the things that that a lot of the music around right. you know, sort of that electro hip hop Egyptian lover yeah. um, African Africa Bambada that that whole you know mix of those sort of sounds. So the moment that I heard that, which I think is from a car passing by, I was like, right, they get it. You know, we're going to talk more about the train spotting soundtrack in a moment, which, you know, there, there was so much music that was used in the film. They had two different volumes. And I feel like um, maybe if Boys in the Hood had had more of a more of a budget backing for the music, they could have easily done all of the West Coast classics as volume two and sure. had the nucleus on it, have Zap, have, you know, George Clinton, P-Funk, whatever, um, that would have, I think, really made a, as a strong compliment to all of the hip hop that's basically sampling from this stuff that yeah. you also hear in the film itself. Yeah. Hearing Ooh Child in this film got to me for sure. Um, there's one other scene that that really stood out to me where Furious is trying to explain gentrification and the drug war to Ricky and Trey. Yeah. And you see the other neighbors in the community come up and join the conversation. But all the while, undercutting that discussion, you're hearing Growing Up in the Hood by Compton's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm playing in the background and it, it's almost just too perfect mm-hmm. you know because it's underscoring everything happening in that moment and the important discussion that needs to be had um oh, yes. i really love that moment i really oh, love yes. that moment growing up in the hood yeah boy 1984 with a gear my peers didn't know what was in store a little hard head kick came my face time to pay my dues Learn the tricks of the trade And at home it's the same as story Moms treat me like she don't even know me Next up we have Jocelyn and her pick Which we've already, we've already spoiled it And this is from 1996 It's the Train Spotting soundtrack So why did you pick this one? You know, I picked this this particular soundtrack For a variety of reasons A lot of things on this soundtrack Were completely new to me mm. But there were definitely very familiar things there Like you've got New Order, you've got Lou Reed. Um, Iggy but Pop. Iggy Pop in and of himself was completely new to me. Mm-hmm. Never heard it before that moment. And, um, you know, you have this overlap of like all of the Brit pop stuff that was going on and was pretty prominent, you know, throughout independent music or underground music at the time. But you also have the beginnings of electronica being introduced to the mainstream music world when you've got Underworld on this particular soundtrack. It just kicked off a whole new world of musical exploration for me. And I'm just curious, is this what you thought in terms of listening to the soundtrack as a soundtrack or when we were watching the film? Because a lot of these songs are very prominently placed in the film. So you both are going to find this wild and likely controversial given the topic of this particular episode in the series. I've never watched this movie in its entirety. I most certainly, though, am going to take a second... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to just say, I was 15 at the time. Okay. And in a very rare instance of parental intervention, yeah. I wasn't allowed to watch it at the time. And even though I've seen it up to a point in my adult life, I'm kind of too afraid to try to watch this movie in full right now, as strange as that sounds. Um, it's a little intense. It's you a little it, intense. You make it sound like hereditary or insidious or something. 
I mean, provided like <laughs> it, it, it does, it, it, it ranks quite high in the pantheon of heroin is bad movies. And uh, it's not quite at the level of uh, Requiem for a Dream, but there's certainly some very memorable scenes about why, you know, heroin bad. So yeah, sure. Well, two things about that. Oliver and I were not 15 when this came out, <laughs> but we're not going to get into specifics on that right. situation, right? right? Um, but also, too, I think a lot of people, based on the trailer, I say, skipped yeah. over this one. So mm. there's no there's no judgment. Heat Rocks is a safe space for missing, like, you know, critically acclaimed and wonderful movies like Train Spotting. No judgment. But there are a lot of people that I know that were just like, this is too much for me because the, because there were graphic parts of it. Well, what did you think of Train Spotting? What did you think of the music in it, uh, Morgan? I couldn't appreciate it as much then as I do now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now that I'm mu a music supervisor, I get it. Yeah. I get how some things are on the nose, but so perfectly on the nose that they're on the money and how other things are just so random, but make perfect sense. I mean, George Bazette, Carmen Habanera, what what are you going to do? And then the electronic stuff, I think, is important. But there, you've got, I mean, from Brian Eno to Lou Reed to a bunch of other things. At the time, I thought, I think the first time I watched it, it was like, this is so random. Now I know that it's not. It's just, to me, it just fits um, in, in every scenario. My entire frame of reference for this movie is relative to the soundtrack and the music videos that accompanied it. And the thing that drew me into wanting to hear this soundtrack at the time was the way in which Lust for Life was utilized and presented at that time. And it happened a lot through the use of music bumpers and interstitials on MTV. And I kept hearing this crazy drum percussive pattern, and I'd never heard anything that rambunctious before. Like, as a teenager, Already being rabid about music, I had to know what that was. Um, and you, I later found it to be a recurring thing with tracks from this album. You would hear little snippets throughout MTV interstitials and show promos almost nonstop at that time. And, and that was how I was kind of starting to pay deeper attention to music. And, and those little bits were catchy as hell. Um, knowing that there were also tracks that I liked from New Order, from Lou Reed included, yeah. that made it just, just even more clear to me that I had to find it. funny because when you mentioned that this was going to be your pick my initial thought was you know i don't really remember much about the music from the movie the things that immediately leapt to mind were specific scenes and so i mean this won't mean much to you um jocelyn f someone who hasn't seen the film yet but you know it's the baby crawling on the ceiling scene it's uh spud uh losing control of his bowels uh you know in, mm. in the bed sheets uh, you know that scene basically as i was saying earlier it's it's all, a lot of the most memorable memorable scenes are all reminders that heroin is is just it's bad like, don't do it um and so really lust for life <laughs> was the only song that i immediately came to mind 
And until I went back to the track listing for the soundtrack and just was looking at the song titles, and then it, it, I felt like it all came flooding back in terms of the use of music in like the club scene where uh, Ewan McGregor's character Rent Boy um, first meets uh, Kelly McDonald's character. Uh, I think that's that's where they're using the New Order. Uh, and then we'll talk more about this um, when we come back in the oh, second temptation. half. Yeah, yeah, Temptation by New Order. And, and then it, I just remembered, yeah, there was a ton of music in the film and really – the the film is inseparable from its use of music and the and in particular the songs that come that play into it. So, um, you know, Jocelyn, even if you had never seen the film, it's easy to imagine how the soundtrack by itself would be memorable because I mean that thing was really really I think well put together. Um, and as we'll talk more about, I think the integration between that music and in the film, and you'll see this when you actually watch the film, was done really expertly. I think there's a reason why. Um, you know, train spotting is considered to be one of the best movie soundtracks of all time, is for all those reasons that we were covering here. We'll be back with more of our music and popcorn episode after a brief word from our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Since the dawn of time, screenwriters have taken months to craft their stories. But now, three Hollywood professionals shall attempt the impossible. Break a story in one hour. That's right. Here on Story Break, I, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, the creators behind award-winning shows like Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Now, an awesome movie starts with an awesome title. I chose The Billionaire's Marriage Valley. Mine was Christmas Pregnant Paradise. <laughs> okay, next we need a protagonist. So I've heard Wario best described as libertarian, Mario. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, every great movie needs a stellar pitch. In order to get to heaven sometimes you gotta raise a little hell <laughs> that's the tagline check out story break every week on maximumfun.org or wherever you get your podcasts hey i'm jordan morris creator of the max fun scripted sci-fi comedy podcast bubble we just released a special episode of bubble to celebrate the launch of our new graphic novel at sf Sketchfest in 2019 we recorded a live show with allison becker eliza skinner mike mitchell christella alonzo and special guests gene gray jonathan colton jesse thorne nick weiger and a bunch of other cool folks we suspect he'll show signs of mutation when in a state of excitement. Now, Annie matched with him on Tinder, so she's going to act as the honeypot. I do enjoy being called a honeypot. Hey, you know what's better than honey? Gravy. <gasps> oh, yeah, can I be the gravy sack? Out now on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get podcasts. And pick up the graphic novel at your local bookstore today. All right, and we're back on Heat Rocks with the first episode of this year's Music and Popcorn series. So, Justin, we're talking about your pick, which is the 1996 soundtrack for Train Spotting. And I think you had something else you wanted to add. I wanted to loop back around to the moment in Boys in the Hood where you're hearing Nucleus's Jam On It being played. That was a song that I vividly recall from my roller rink days. Mm. And of course, you heard Kraftwerk, you heard Egyptian Lover, you heard Paul Hardcastle. All of that stuff you would hear both in that space. You'd hear it in mixes on Black Radio in the 80s as well. 
And somehow the inclusion of Underworld's Born Slippy Nooks in this film soundtrack felt like mm. a natural extension of that world to me in terms of my listening. It brought me back to something that was a part of my life very early on, but that I'd kind of forgotten about. And it put me back in the space of wanting to ask my uncle where his craft work records were, because I needed to hear that again. Um, and it all also just seemed like a very important part of the beginning of electronic music canning of foothold in the mainstream of American listeners. You are hearing about Underworld. You are hearing about the Chemical Brothers and Fotech 2 around this time. And MTV went as far as to create the show Amp that featured electronic music from around the world. Mm. Because I was interested in it, I learned about artists like DJ Crush, Carl Craig, Goldie, and Cold Cut on the show. This entire period of discovery for me, you know, it ended up being one that changed my life and my entire trajectory. And all of that started with hearing this Underworld track on the soundtrack first. What's your fire track from the album? I think I might have tipped my hand earlier. Um, Born Slippy Nooks for all of the reasons that I mentioned before. But beyond this, I would have to say Primal Scream's Train Spotting. The percussive loop that happens in the first minute of that track is begging to be sampled and used someplace. And I found myself kind of head nodding throughout and, you know, recently listening to it again, dancing in the car. And if I can, I'd like to throw in a bonus track from the second train spotting soundtrack as well, Goldie's Inner City Life. Um, that was a formative track for me, and it made me think about music very differently after I'd heard it. And the vocalist that you'll hear on that track is a, is a woman named Diane Charlemagne, who I'd like to give her flowers. She was a member of 52nd Street, and I love them very much. She's no longer with us, but man, was she talented. Morgan, do you have a fire track off of Train Spotting? Uh, my favorite, my fire track from theirs is Brian Eno, Deep Blue Day. Mm. That's my fire track. And um, I'm surprised about that because it's Brian Eno and it's super mellow. Yeah. But I think I can't separate that track from the placement. Yeah. And at the time I was like, meh. But going back and watching the film again, to me, it stands apart. There's some great stuff on there. But for me... I'm so wedded to that placement and how it's used mm. that that's the fire track for me. Mm. 
as is my habit, I'm going to go with the obvious basic choice, which is lust, <laughs> which is lust for life. Because how can you go wrong with Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop with yes. an assist from David Frickin Bowie, you know, co-writing you that can. song. And, um, you know, it's again, spoiler alert for Jocelyn, it's the, it, it opens the film. So really, I think the Universal logo comes on or whatever the film studio that put the film out. And then you get dropped immediately into the film, into the song. And, you know, I, I don't really know a ton of Iggy Pop, but this is definitely, a, you know, a, a burner from him. I mean, this is, it's a heat rock from, from Iggy and it's, it's a great way to, again, the placement is great, but just by itself, Lust for Life is just so much energy, so much vivaciousness. Um, you know, it's, it, it's great. And, and, and it, again, the obvious choice, but I don't think the wrong one. And now we've we've started already talking a little bit about the music placements. Uh, Morgan, you you had mentioned the, the Brian Eno one. And I just mentioned a moment ago that Lust for Life opens the film and it does so in this incredibly kinetic way. And I think it's a wonderful way to begin the film. Um, I think what edges it out for me in terms of the placement would be when um, Rent Boy is overdosing and there's this long scene in which as he's potentially dying, we hear Lou Reed's Perfect Day play. And whether that's meant to be ironic or meant to be maybe non-ironic, either way, I mean, that's a song that I've heard people describe as what heroin feels like. So it seems maybe too pitch perfect, but you go back and you rewatch that scene and all the chaos around McGregor and the fact that he might be dying and the, the, the people who have uh, who gave him the, the, the heroin are, are basically dropping him off uh, very unceremoniously at a, at a hospital. He's on a gurney. And this song, this incredibly mellow, you know, it's one of the most sublime Lou Reed songs out there is playing in the background. And just the juxtaposition between those things, I think really, really makes this placement work. So, so that's my pick. Then later, a movie too, and then home. Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. And so, Morgan, yours would be the, the, the use of the Brian Eno? It is the Brian Eno um, track, um, Deep Blue Day, because it is, it comes at a moment where Rent Boy loses his, his opium suppositories. He's in the bathroom, and they go into the toilet. <laughs> it's an amazing scene. Oh no! You know, I I, I gotta oh, say no. again, and I'm so I'm sorry, Jocelyn. You just close your ears because we're just we're just spoiling it. But I think the first time I saw the film, I mean, the film just opens with you know Rent Boy and his his guys uh, running away from the police, and so already you're kind of thrown into um, just this this like what's what the hell's going on? But until that scene, which comes, I think really maybe in the first ten to fifteen minutes, where you see yeah you and McGregor diving into, I mean, no pun intended, like a shitty toilet. <laughs> And it turns into this whole surreal thing. And again, the Eno music is playing in the background. I just remember thinking like, what the F is this? Like this right. film is off the chain. And this is before the baby on the ceiling scene. It's before like a it's lot before. of stuff. Already like in the first 10 minutes, like 
damn. It's funny. Um, our, our producer, Christian, has not seen this film, but he just put in the chat, like, this movie sounds insane. My dude, you need to go see it Train is. Spotting. You need to go treat. <laughs> but just remember, it is. just remember, heroin is bad. It's okay? bad. Yeah. Uh, and when, when, when this same scene came on, I was like, you know what? If I don't take anything away from this film, don't heroin, heroin is bad. <laughs> My man has dived into the toilet <laughs> to chase his stash, but he emerges into this blue, I mean, yeah. so ethereal. Right. And then you got Brian Eno. Yeah. And for me, that's, it's perfect. So yes, that's my favorite placement. So Morgan, you're up and your pick is from 1997. What is it? It is Love Jones. It's the original soundtrack to to Love Jones and Yay. one of my favorites. And music supervisors get asked this all the time. I'm sure, Jocelyn, you've been asked a thousand times, like, what are some of your favorite soundtracks? This is in my top five, um, not just because of the quality of the music, but uh, neither you nor I would even have a job in this business had it not been for the trails blazed by the late, great Pilar McCurry, uh, who was the music supervisor on this soundtrack. We lost her three years ago, but she's the first black woman uh, music supervisor in the business. And so it's precious to me for that reason. And also, too, because um, she was right at the cusp. She she came right in at, at a perfect time of Neil. So like she just capped it and she put everything she threw everything into this film it's so sexy mm. um and the scene is so sexy and beautiful and everyone's beautiful in the film yeah uh so this for me is just like it's a to me it's an embarrassment of riches sonically everything she had um she put into that and i had a chance to talk to the director a teddy witcher a couple years ago and he he, he confessed that he didn't really know about music budgets so he was like oh i just want like tons of sade and I'm sure somebody was like, oh, no, 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 we not <laughs> we we don't have that type of bread in 97. We don't have that type of bread. But uh, but, uh, but they got but Fuji's yeah. and Lauren Hill on the cheap because this is before they really had blown, blown up. So, you yeah. know, that, sure, was, sure. that worked out for them pretty well, I would say. It did. Yeah. It did. So. So, yeah, it did undergird this whole neo soul movement and also um, working around the spoken word scene. It was just like a perfect marriage. It was a perfect sound of uh, a spoken word at that time. Yeah. Even though you never want to show This is my confession time, and in the same way in which Jocelyn has spent a lot of quality time with the Train Spotting soundtrack but never saw the movie, I spent a lot of quality time with the Love Jones soundtrack, which I love, have still yet to ever see the movie, though I did give it a speed watch so I could answer the music placement question. Um, I will say on that note that, my God, like young Lorenz Tate and Nia Long look incredible together. We can we can come back to that point later if we need to. Um but I just want to ask you, Morgan, and you've, you've actually alluded to this um, as we've been talking about it, but my memory of how people talked about Love Jones is they gave it a lot of credit for basically launching Neo Soul. I don't know if that's overstated or not, but I figure you're the person to ask about that. It comes around the time. I mean, we're coming around Baduism. And so I would take Neo Soul a little bit further back, mm -hmm. right? 
I would say so. I would take it back to D'Angelo, but yeah. I think this is this is Badoism, mm -hmm. and so this is where we're getting into that where where most people uh, credit Neo Soul as having started. Then, yeah. So I think I think once you think about all that she's got, all that Pilar put on this, all yeah. the artists that are just stars, their groove theories on here, yeah. Maxwell's on here, something yeah. something. I mean, yeah. these are key hits for these artists, right? Right. Right. You got the Fugees, you got Lauren Hill and, and the miseducation is, is, is barking, you know, you got Kenny Lattimore. So I, I think this is sort of a neo-soul soundtrack. Yeah. And I think also, and this ties it back into sort of also the, how the movie itself functions and the role that the music plays within it is, I'm trying to think until that point, there was not as many, I can't think of that many other prominent films that reflected the kind of the black bohemian side of things. I mean, everything that we got up to that point was more like Boys in the Hood. They were hood films, basically, right? I mean, you had a few things in there that were more about the kind of the black middle class. I'm kind of thinking of like The Wood, which is, you know, set in Inglewood. But I felt like Love Jones was the first one that was about like the spoken word cafe culture of, you know, a different a different side of, of black America, which I don't think Hollywood had really done much of a job of, of showing. And Love Jones captured it, it from, again, not having seen it, I can't say this for a fact, but in terms of just what I remember of the discourse around the film is that it was one of the few thing, first things that put, again, kind of like black bohos to, to quote from, I think what was the Greg Tate or Nelson George's term, um, really put them front and center, um, you know, in, in, in Hollywood. A hundred percent. And I think it had to be so because the, those two characters, Nia Long and Lorenz Tate, they got the cool bohemian jobs too. He's a spoken word guy. She's a photographer. She's a Everything's photographer, right. dimly lit. They're fine. Lisa Nicole Carson is fine. Yes. You know, their friends are, are smart and, and everyone's sexy. It's lit really beautiful. Black people looking beautiful on there. So you could, right. you had to have a soundtrack that matched that, matched that level of sexy. And yeah. when you introduce things like vinyl, you know, Lorenz Tate goes on to talk about how he prefers the crackle, you know, what's so, you know, this is a music nerds thing. It probably bothered you too, but you know, his record wasn't even in the case. I was like, how's your record not in the case? You love the crackle. You ain't even, but you haven't protected your record, right? Well, he no, comes but that's in. why it crackles is because <laughs> he hasn't protected it. So he's actually, he's keeping it mad real. Come on. He's like, yeah, you know. Let, let O-Dog live. I remember I watched it. I was like, <laughs> but I just, you know, I loved him through it. I loved him through it. But, uh, but there's so many good moments outside of the Neo Soul soundtrack. Yeah. There's so many good moments Mm -hmm. I love a film that has a record store in there. It's just precious. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. they've got one. I think it's called The Last of the Old Time Record Stores. And a classic scene is they're playing Cameo, Shake Your Pants, which is one of the first 45s. Not the first, but one of the first 45s that I bought. And I was like, this mm -hmm. is key. And they use it. Uh, Pilar uses it as score because it carries mm -hmm. over a couple scenes. And when it gets in there, when it gets there, it gets to that scene. It's playing inside the record store, which I think is perfect. Morgan, what would be your fire track from the soundtrack? Oh, tough crowd. That's like picking <laughs> a favorite child, you know? Uh, there's so much good stuff on there. It really is. It's so, it is such a good soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, I will say this. I've said this before. I said this on, on, on another show that there are certain moments that as a supervisor, I am chasing, mm, right? Mm. And 
I said that the intimacy that I think in some of these moments of, of Michelle and Dagio Cello when she's on records, those moments are what I'm yeah. chasing in supervision. And so my fire track would be Rush Over, Michelle and Dagio Cello and Marcus mm. Miller. I mean, it's like a it's like a base god summer camp. You got two of the best in the business on there, um, thumping away, Michelle doing her thing, you know, a mix of sort of like spoken word herself and singing. I think it's perfect. Th- and it's hard. That's saying a lot considering I love everything on there, but but that's my fire track from the soundtrack. Rush over. <laughs> JB, how about you? Mine would be Refugee All-Stars featuring Lauren Hill, The Sweetest Thing. Yeah. Um, mm, in yeah. credits. In credits. Um, but talk about a song that is evocative of a specific time, place, and mood, culturally speaking. Yeah. You know, whenever I hear this song, I'm immediately transported back to kind of getting my first taste of freedom as a young person and just kind of observing how things work in the world for older people. I I started college a little bit early and, you know, you're on campus, you're trying to figure out how things work and just chilling in the cut. (laughs) But I would constantly hear this blasting out of so many cars on campus. I was at Florida A&M at the time. So, you know, you're walking along the set, you're hearing people playing this from their radios and, Plenty of dudes trying to holler at girls who could not be bothered or care less. Um, but things change. And and as that summer moved along, you know, that was the only song that really seemed to fit what was going on. It was a sweet, sweet, sweetest thing I've known. It was a For me, and I, I talked about this song before when we had Van Hunt on, because I realized in, in prepping for that that episode that he co-wrote this song along with Dion Ferris, which is Hopeless, which is the first song you hear. It opens the film. Um, I mean, the first time I ever heard the soundtrack, because I, I want to say this is the first song on the soundtrack in the same way that it opens the film. Yeah. I was just instantly like, what is this? Who is this? What does it mean to have a penny with a hole in it? I I don't know if I fully understood the metaphor at the time, but nonetheless, it was such a pretty, pretty beautiful, sublime tune that completely, I mean, we're talking about this album almost 25 years later. This song still completely holds up. I stayed just a little too long. Now it's time for me to move on. So I just want to shout out Van Hunt again. I think I thanked him back then when he was on the show for having something to do with the song. I'm going to thank him again and thank Dion Ferris for it because uh, Hopeless is it for me. Absolutely. Ooh, that uh, one's fire. Fire, fire, fire. I mean, it's, it's tough. This is, this is a, I, I think all three of the soundtracks that we picked, and this is probably why we all picked them, is it's not like they're, you know, one or two trackers. Like the whole, each of these um, are just filled with gems. Let's talk about the music placements in the in the film itself. And uh, Morgan, what was your favorite example? Was it was it was it the uh, last poets esque spoken word scene at the beginning of the film? Uh, no, that's not your jam. <laughs> no, I would have to say in credits. I would have to say in credits, and I'll say that because the scene in question. I mean, it ends with 
Nia Long standing in the rain. And I look back at that. I was like, why did she have to be in the rain? You know, her hair was done. <laughs> She's standing in the rain. That's how much you love someone. A black woman standing in the rain, getting your hair done, getting your hair all wet. And they've gone through a whole lot. And it's just so perfect the way it comes up, the way the song begins. And it just ends on something that's unfinished. She's like, I live in New York. How's this going to be? He's like, all we have is right now. And then you come into that into the song and it's Lauren Hill and it's just so perfect. It's just, it just ends just so, it just ends so perfectly. Your kiss tastes like all Let me just once again say that I sped watched this just to figure out where the placements were. And I, I saw enough of Love Jones to instantly commit myself to say, I'm going to go back and watch this properly. Uh, not tonight, but at some later point soon, basically around the time that Jocelyn and, and Christian watched Train Spotting, perhaps. But it's it's the montage scene where they're playing John Coltrane and Duke Ellington's rendition of In a Sentimental Mood. And I've talked about this song on the show before. It's just one of, I think, one of the greatest ballads of all time. The montage appears, um, that when, which the song is places, I think, around the end of the second act. And look, those two characters, right? Lorenz, Lorenz Tate and, and Neil Long's character could have been doing taxes and the song could have been playing and it would have been just as lovely because it's so, it's so uber romantic. And I just want to acknowledge, and this goes back to a point that you were saying, Morgan, about how you you were a little annoyed at how um, Tate's character handles his records. So in this scene is he basically says, hey, can I play you something? And you see a record on on a turntable and the needle comes over and it drops in on A1. And this is everything that they get right in the scene. And not a lot of films do this. Number one, it's the right album. Like you can actually see the label. It's John Coltrane and Duke Ellington. Um, it's an original, or at least it's an early 60s pressing because you can tell from the the, the the impulse label. I'm really exposing myself as a nerd, not that this would be a surprise to anyone in the audience. <laughs> but these are the things that I notice. It's like, okay, it's the right impulse design of the label. And it drops on song A1, and then you hear in a sentimental mood playing. And so I instantly went and checked the track listing of that album. And indeed, in a sentimental mood is track A1. And a lot of films don't get that right. Like they just, they'll just have a scene of you see the needle drop on the record. And it's like, wait, that you're, you're playing the last song, but it's the, the song you're playing is actually in the middle or something like that. And to me, I think directors and editors pay attention to Love Jones and their use of In a, in a Sentimental Mood, because this is how you properly play a song off of a record in your movie. Indeed, shouts to Pilar McCurry, because that was her decision. That was her choice. I mean, such a massive, massive loss of a great, talented music supervisor. That's one. And the other part is, I mean, for Lorenz Tate, if you were going to have all that, you needed to put your records in the case. If you were going to be if you were going to be that discriminating about, you know, your songs, that stuff has to be preserved out there, man. True, true. You know, but yes. To your point, it, it is great. And when, when films don't get it right with vinyl, I'm sure yeah. JB feels the same thing. You're in right. there cringing like, come Fine. on. Jocelyn, how about you? What's your favorite placement in Love Jones? 
You know, my favorite scene in the film doesn't involve a music placement mm. necessarily, but it does have to do with music. And, and Morgan kind of alluded to this earlier. The fact that these characters actually walk into a physical record store, have an exchange with the clerk on duty. You know, you see Nina walk into the record store. She's explaining or exchanging pleasantries with the clerk. And she tells her that she needs and Isley Brothers CD. Yes. And and how many of us haven't had that moment where like it has been a day you just want to hear what you need to hear in that moment. I felt that. And you know a very interesting exchange follows when Darius comes into the store at the same time <laughs> that to me is pretty pivotal to this film and necessary and I appreciated it. So that that to me that that scene in the film had a lot of importance. Indeed. And it's so nice to see to have that moment with a record store clerk that's not an that's really right. committed to helping you finding whatever it is that you needed to find. And they're not Cusack in high fidelity where it's like, well, I'm too deep for you. You know what I'm saying? Well, what do you mean? This is what you're asking for. You don't want this edition. It's just so nice to have someone be like, yeah, you know what? I got you. So that right. was what was also precious about that scene that you got a record store clerk that's approachable. And that's how you know you're in the right store. No doubt. Yep. Have yeah. either of you ever been able to uh, place a uh, music in a record store scene in a television show or movie that you've worked on? I'm working on something now okay. where we will be where we will be doing that. I have not yet been able to do that, but it's a goal. Yes, and and when I get my chance, bucket list right there. Before we jump out of here, as always, we want to leave you all with some recommendations and we'll stay on theme with our episode today about 90s soundtracks. So what other 90s soundtracks should people check out? Morgan, why don't you lead us off? Uh, I'm going to have to go with uh, Death Row and Above the Rim Baby, 1994, March 22nd. Why do I know that? (laughs) Because I played that thing to death. Okay, there are so many heaters on there. I mean, and I'll just go down the list, although you should know. I mean, it's just that prolific. Uh, part-time lover, H-Town, one of my favorites. Uh, Regulators on there, Nate Dog, Warren G. The Lady of Rage, you mentioned it earlier, man. Afro Puffs is on there. You got, um, I'll be sure I'm still in love with you. Gonna give it to you, which is probably one of my favorite cuts on there, which is Aaron Hall and Jewel, not to be confused with Jewel. And uh, Hoochies Need Love to Big Pimpin'. And uh, probably the standout track for me is is an SWV track called Anything. Um, ooh, I don't, butter. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that thing is fire. Jocelyn, how about you? You know, I am going to do something a bit controversial. I love the Above the Rim soundtrack. I just have to stick that in there and say it. Um, But I'm going to do something controversial. I've got two picks and a dead tie, and my childhood best friend would be really, really angry with me if I didn't at least say one of these things. Dead tie between the Clueless soundtrack 
and the Reality Bites soundtrack. I'm not mad at that. And to my childhood best friend, Heather Gray, you know why Reality Bites is in there. Dinosaur Jr. will have its revenge on our friendship. Oliver, how about you? I, I don't have as many subliminals to be throwing out here. Um, I'm going to stick with <laughs> my discussion around uh, 90s hip-hop soundtracks, and I'm going to go back to something that Morgan was saying earlier about how a lot of these soundtracks completely outlived our memory of the movies themselves. Um, though this, in this case, this is another example of I knew the soundtrack well, I just never saw the film, which was the 1996 film High School High, um, which oh, I yes. believe was a comedy that was very poorly reviewed. But in terms of hip-hop soundtracks of the 90s, this might have been the most powerhouse example. And they have they have Wu-Tang on here with Wu Wear. Not one of their better songs, to be quite honest. But again, they got the Wu on here. They have um, D'Angelo and Erica Badu uh, duetting on a cover of Your Precious Love. They have Large Professor and Pete Rock putting together actually a pretty solid song by the two of them called The Rap World. Uh, Little Kim's Queen Bitch is on here. Yep. You have uh, Karis One doing a song called High School Rock. A Tribe Called Quest have an exclusive song on here called Peace, Prosperity, and Paper. The Artifacts with The Ultimate, Sadat X and Grand Puba on a brand Nubian reunion uh, track called The Next Spot. Uh, Scarface is on here. Inspector Deck's on here. The Roots are on here. So, I mean, this was, you know, I think really at the height in which music labels were like how De La, I forgot to mention De La was on here that they basically mined like who are the biggest acts out there, especially for, you know, heads like myself at the time in the mid nineties. And so when we just even saw the listing of the acts on here, I just remembered like my jaw dropping, like, wow, this looks amazing. And it's not like it's the, a world beater soundtrack, but I think as an artifact of the time and it's attempt at capturing what hip hop of, you know, of 95, 96 sounded like, I think high school high did a, a pretty impressive job in that respect. So that'd be my pick. And on that note, that'll do it for this episode of volume two of music and popcorn. Jocelyn, thank you so much for dropping in and joining us on this. And thank you so much for being our, our guest host uh, throughout this first half of, of 2021. Like it, We Indeed. literally couldn't be making the show uh, without your contribution. I'm honored, I'm honored to have been invited. And honestly, you guys have made a very tough year so much better by inviting me on. So I thank you. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Fuller. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.